Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for um, the opportunity to gather and worship this morning. On this Lord's Day, we pray that you'd bless now um, our consideration of First John as we uh, meet together this morning. Be with us, Lord Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, uh, yeah, so we're continuing in our First John, um, looking today in chapter 2, um, beginning with verse 15. Um, to set the context, I'll, well, before I jump into new material today, any, any reflections from last week or previous weeks? Anybody have some stories to tell about listening to First John at home uh, during the week? Anybody have anything to say as we get started this morning? Any holdover thoughts or? Terry. Yeah. Yeah. Loving your brother. Yes. Yeah. So Terry was telling me before Sunday school that he's been listening, I think every day, right? You said just about um, to the entirety, which can be accomplished and not a whole lot of time, 15, 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, and so I appreciate that, Terry. That's great. I, I think that really is a help, helpful way to encounter the Word of God. Um, and there's so many ways for us to do that now, either by reading it ourselves or having um, an audio uh, version of it, someone reading it to us. Um, so we'll, we'll be looking today, hopefully at the remainder of chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, but I'll just read a little bit um, of context for us, um, and then I'll read the, the section. Um, well, I'll just read the section in its entirety. That's what I'll do, starting in 2.15 to 3.3, which is what we're hoping to cover this morning. So John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son 
and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we'll begin this morning just by looking at that first section, verses 15 to 17. Um, remember, one of John's most important themes in his epistle is love. Um, in 1 John 2, 5, he's begun to exposit on this theme. He says, but whoever keeps the word of Jesus in him, truly the love of God, God's love is perfected um, as we obey the word of Christ, as we walk in obedience. In 1 John 2, 7, he addresses his readers as beloved, again, um, grounding them in that identity as the beloved of God. And then in 1 John 2, 10, um, he has said, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So to love your brother um, is to live, is to dwell, is to have habitation in the light um, where God is. Remember, God is light, um, as he said in chapter 1, and in him there is no darkness at all. But this um, emphasis on love also has to do with what we're not to love. Um, and that's what he gets into here in verses 15 to 17. Uh, John writes, do not love the world. So in you, the love of God is perfected. You are the beloved of God. Love your brother. Then he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, interestingly, one of the things that John does not emphasize, he doesn't exclude this, of course, but he does not emphasize loving God explicitly. Um, what he emphasizes is that we are loved by God, that God's love is perfected in us as we obey his commandments, that we are the beloved children of God, 
Uh, but then it seems as though he argues that that love that God has for us, um, if it's real, leads to love of brother, right? Love of sibling in Christ. Um, and where it does not lead is love of the world. Um, that's not a path um, where our loves um, are meant to go. So being those who are loved by God means not loving, that is not setting our affections on the world. Um, the world here, I think it's important to say, doesn't mean uh, physical, fleshly created things, right? That's not the opposition, um, you know, things that are not physical versus things that are physical. Um, our brother or our sister, for example, is very physical and fleshly and created. Um, to not love the world means not loving whatever is not of God, right? The world is whatever is not of God. The desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things pass away. And in fact, this is a test of what is in the world, I think. Um, John says that the world is passing away. So that which passes away is the world, that which does not last, which does not endure. And of course, one of the reasons we're to love our brother or our sister in the Lord is because they endure, they last, um, they will not pass away as the world will. Um, in contrast to those um, who refuse, in contrast, those who refuse to love the world, those in whom the love of God then is perfected, they will abide forever. So you have that contrast, right? Uh, the world passes away. Um, it does not last, it does not stand. Um, and again, so the world can't just be the creation because creation lasts. Um, the world is something else. The world is fallen desires, it's covetousness, it's um, lust, it's all of the things that we might um, harbor within ourselves. The world is passing away. Those things are passing away. In the eschaton, there will be none of that. Um, but whoever does the will of God will not pass away, will abide forever. Um, what we love, I think, Cal or John is arguing here, shapes who we are. Um, it, it, it forms who we become. Um, Psalm 115.8 tells us that those who make idols become like them, um, so do all who trust in them. Um, so where our loves are oriented determines who we become. And so the question is, what do we love, I think? Where are our affections being set? Um, where is our heart leading us? Um, Calvin writes, he says, by the world, in this passage, understand whatever concerns the present life when it is separated from God's kingdom and the hope of eternal life. All that is in the world is fading and momentary, and so John concludes that they who place their happiness in it make a bad and wretched provision for themselves, especially since God calls us to the blessed glory of eternal life. Eternal life is abiding forever um, without end. What do you all think about these three verses? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever.
What thoughts or comments, questions do you have? Anybody? We need to long. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. it's when we get what we think is gonna make us happy and contented. It doesn't, we just find ourselves wanting to do something else. Yeah, no I think that's well put, Alexis. We do we need to long, we need to love. Um, everyone loves and longs for something. Um, and what, what that thing is shapes um, yeah, who we are, our identity so to speak, um, who we become over time. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that bifurcation is not helpful. Kathina. Hard to argue with, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's part of why the scriptures emphasize um, the knowledge of our frailty and our mortality as being fundamental to being wise. I mean, think about Psalm 90, think about the book of Ecclesiastes, um, think about the parable that um, in Luke that Alexis referred to. Um, it is, it is, it's right. I mean, I, there is, I think it is possible for people to act under a kind of delusion that is not consistent at all with reality as they observe it, right? They witness the fact that people die and are forgotten. Um, all of us will be forgotten in a hundred years or so. You know, maybe we'll be on somebody's genealogical tree somewhere as the distant ancestor that lived one time in the early 21st century. Um, but uh, 
and you know, our, our wealth, our things that we build up are passed on to others, right? They don't last. Um, we don't know what they're gonna do with them. Um, yeah, and, and, and it, is, it is, when you think about it that way, it does change your perspective in terms of what are you aiming for? What is, what is it that you're working? Why are you working so hard for the things that you're working for, whether that's acclaim by others, you know, um, that doesn't last, it's momentary, um, always. Um, I mean, even you can think about, you know, like really famous celebrities, you know, like 10 years ago and they just, they don't last, you know, like they're forgotten now. Even that extreme of kind of a, and how much more um, sort of normal acclaim. Um, yeah, possessions, whatever it might be. Yeah. That's right. What did you say about the Ecclesiastes? Yeah, it's the whole book Ecclesiastes, right. Vapor of vapor. All is vapor. But there are things that do last. I mean, that's the contrast, and that's what I think John is calling us to here. Um, positively, he's saying there is a way for you to live forever. There is a way for you to invest in things that will matter forever. Um, largely, the love of God and the love of your neighbor, the love of your brother or sister in Christ, um, because they do last. Um, you know, that think of that. Uh, picture in um, the great divorce by Lewis, right, where um, the uh, author goes and has his vision or experience of the new creation, and um, and the people are are weighty, right? They just they take up space. Um, they're the most you know thickest things that that exist at that point, um, and uh, it's a it's really fascinating to think about that. Um, our love for one another in the church. Um, is not ever wasted. Um, it matters. It carries on um, as we invest in one another. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Daniel. Um, you're, I think that's really well put. You're right. John does speak very um, bluntly about, you know, this or that. Um, you're, you're this way or you're that way. Um, you love God or you love the world. Um, you love the truth or you're a liar. Um, and you're right also that he also, from the very beginning, builds in this reality that we're all sinners and that we're not pure and that we're and I think some of this is just the tension of um, what it means to live in this world as those 
who have not yet been made perfectly holy, um, who do in some sense continue to love the world um, in terms of, you know, our, our sin, our falling short, our um, desires are not um, always or rarely are they pure, honestly. Um, and what I would say is simply that I think that there is what John is, what the distinction John is making is that there is a, each of us have lives that have a trajectory, right? Um, even if that trajectory is not as upward as it should be, um, we're, we're going somewhere. And, um, and that's, that's how I take him to mean, um, you know, you, you're either in or you're out. Um, that the ways in which our desires and our actions are not always consistent with who we are or where we're headed does not mean that we're not still going in, in one direction or the other. Um, and I, I, that's what I would say. I mean, and, and I think part of that is, this is why confession of sin is so important because essentially what we're doing, we're confessing our sin is we're saying, okay, this is not consistent with what I know is true, what I, what I know, what I believe regarding God and the world, right? I'm saying this, this thing that I've done betrays an inconsistency in me, right? That I, but by, by, by saying that, you're acknowledging that you're, you are going in a certain direction. Does that make sense? That your love is, you, you're wanting your love at least to be directed in a particular way. Um, it's the person who doesn't see his sin who doesn't see the inconsistency that is in trouble, I think, according to, to John, right? Um, so in, in some sense, I, I think for John, like being wise to our own um, inconsistencies and hypocrisies actually should be an assuring thing, right? Um, it, it should assure us that, that the Spirit is at work in us, that we do belong to God um, when we when we acknowledge and notice and feel the tension of the way that our sin is. That's what I would say. <clears throat> Anything else about the world and love and abiding forever? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. John? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. He is hopeful. Yeah, he says our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Um, 
which is a fascinating thing to say about flawed people and their faith. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, let's look at um, verses 18 to 27. We read this and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. John writes, he says, children, notice again the repetition of that address that carries um, throughout the epistle. Children, he says, children of God, I think is the implication. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So I think there are a few um, exegetical questions that are important um, in this section here. Uh, one is, what does John mean by the last hour? Um, second um, is, what does John mean by antichrists um, or antichrist that he talks about here? And um, thirdly, what does he mean by anointing? Um, what is this anointing that he refers to um, that is going to keep um, his flock um, in the truth and keep them from false teaching? So first, I would say the last hour, I think it's unclear exactly what John means here. I mean, th this is a debated question, of course, by um, scholars. Um, perhaps for John, I write it, it's simply the time that stands in for the period before Jesus' final return. So um, if you think about where John lived in redemptive history, um, you know, Jesus had um, become incarnate, had died a sacrificial death, had risen from the dead, had to heaven, and, you know, all of that is past. What remains, you know, what remains in the creed? he shall come on the last day to judge the living and the dead, right? So perhaps living in the last hour is just simply a reference to all has been accomplished in redemption apart from the eschaton, apart from um, Jesus bringing all things to their fulfillment on the last day. Um, I think that's possible. Um, Calvin seems to feel that that's what he means. He says, the apostle after the common manner which scripture adopts warns believers that no more remained but for Christ to appear for the redemption of the world. I think it's also possible, I write here, that perhaps John is referring 
um, to the imminent fulfillment of Jesus's prophecies about the destruction of the temple. Um, this is a perspective that I often have on the New Testament. Um, this idea that we need to take really seriously the predictions of Jesus and his life. Um, Jesus predicted that he would die and rise again, and he predicted multiple times in public that the temple would be destroyed within a And um, I think it's likely that John writes this letter before that has taken place, um, um, like the rest of the New Testament. And I think it is very possible that what John is referring to here is a horizon that has to do with the destruction of the temple that he anticipates is going to happen very soon. I don't, I don't think that that precludes the meaning that Calvin is talking about, that, you know, that we are in this last hour that extends even um, to this day and age now. But I do think that's an important context to keep in mind. For John, um, Antichrist seems to be the equivalent of false prophets, especially prophets or teachers who appeared to be believers at one time, orthodox at one time, um, but now are teaching falsely, um, particularly those who deny the divine sonship and or the humanity of Jesus. Um, John refers again in his letter in chapter 4 to these antichrists. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are, f whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, right, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This, he says, is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Um, so that, that's how I take um, John's reference here in 1 John to Antichrist's that they are false teachers. They are who, who, those who oppose the teaching of Jesus, um, oppose um, Jesus's identity either as the divine son of God, um, being um, uh, God's true son, the Messiah, the anointed one, or deny um, his uh, real humanity, that he came in the flesh, as, um, as John writes there in chapter 4. Um, and of course, contextually, these were huge questions in the first century um, um, as, as the church was working through its Christology and what it meant um, that Jesus was both uh, man and God at the same time. Um, and so that, that's my sense here is that, that what he's warning them against fundamentally is not, you know, some sort of, um, you know, what's the guy, Hal Lindsey or whatever, um, Antichrist, but... Um, false teaching that, that will, is creeping up in the community um, that is, exists, um, people who are, are questioning sort of orthodox Christian teaching, um, and that, that's what he's warning them against, I think, here. Um, in contrast, John is exhorting his readers to stick closely to that which you heard from the beginning, which I think he means the testimony of his gospel, the gospel of John, which presumably these people have, and the testimony of the apostles as a whole. Remember how he begins his letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, um, that's what we heard, that we touched with our hands, that we saw, and we declare now to you, right? The apostolic message is this message that they give about Jesus. And I think he's saying, stick to that, stick to what 
um, the faithful um, teaching of Jesus is. What is the anointing? Um, Greek, this is the word chrisma. Um, you can see the, the relationship to the word Christ, right, in Greek. Um, Greek uh, Christ, of course, is just the Greek version of Messiah, the um, Hebrew word for anointed Messiah. Um, so um, chrisma, chrisma um, is related, it's, it's, you know, it's in being in Christ in some sense, um, in terms of the just etymology of the Greek there. So what is this anointing that John refers to in verses 20 and 27? It's really important for his argument here. He basically says it's the anointing that is going to teach you. It's the anointing that's going to keep you in the truth. Um, in verse 20, he says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. It seems clear to me that the Holy One there is Jesus. And you all have knowledge. And then in 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him so the anointing is something that comes from jesus it leads to knowledge for those who receive it um, it actually is something that abides in them it, it, the anointing has personal qualities in some sense um, it's not just a you know a vial of oil or something it's it's um, it, the anointing abides in those who receive it. Um, and the anointing also, uh, it does things, right? As his anointing teaches you about everything, the anointing of Christ teaches actually those who have been anointed. The anointing itself does that. Um, just as it has taught in you, just as it has taught you abide in him. The anointing teaches us, it abides in us, we receive his teaching and we abide in him. Um, so I think that the anointing here that John refers to is the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a way of him talking about the Spirit. Remember in John 16, 12 to 15, Jesus says that what the Spirit will do, the Spirit will actually guide you into all truth, that the Spirit will instruct you, and the Spirit will lead you into wisdom. Um, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit and his baptism. I mean, that's, it's really fascinating, right, for Jesus, who is allegedly the Messiah, the anointed one, that there's never a story in the, in the scriptures about him, you know, being anointed by a priest, right, um, like uh, David was, um, or Solomon, who were anointed as kings of Israel. Jesus isn't anointed in the same way, but of course he is anointed in a sense by a priest. Uh, John the Baptist is the son of a priest, he is a, in the priestly line, and he anoints Jesus in his baptism um, with water, but then the Spirit um, comes down and it descends, and the Spirit, in a sense, is the anointing that the Messiah receives. Um, so I think that um, Jesus, and Jesus then anoints his apostles, in a sense, when he breathes on them in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a kind of baptism for them um, um, in the Spirit, an anointing. Um, in 1 John 4, 1 to 6, the Spirit is the one who opposes the teaching of the Antichrists um, uh, that leads to truth about Jesus. And as I just mentioned, the anointing has these personal qualities in 1 John 2. It's not just an abstract thing. It's something that teaches. It's something that abides in you. It's something you abide in. Um, so I, my, my sense is that this is a way of Jesus referring 
um, to the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to abide in the Holy Spirit? It means to listen, pay close attention to what the Spirit is saying. And where does the Spirit speak? The Spirit speaks through the Word and the Scriptures, right, which are inspired by God, which are breathed out by God, which the, the Spirit has a special role in bringing about. Uh, the particular role of the Spirit is to guide us into a deeper understanding of Jesus through the scriptural testimony about him. So we believe that when it comes to the scriptures, the Spirit both inspires um, the words when they are written in the first place, but it also the Spirit brings illumination to those who hear them preached or who read them, who study them um, alone or in community. If, if you're going to be led into right understanding of the scriptures, you need the Spirit's help to illuminate them to you. But this is how the Spirit speaks through the Word of God. Any thoughts about all of that? Yes, sir. Yep. To the spirit? Yes. I think we could certainly say it it's a crystal yeah, it's a kind of, you know, a fuller sense. Um in its immediate um context. Um you know, well, that's a good question. I mean he's writing there as someone who has been anointed as the king of Israel. So he's also writing for the community as a whole. And in that sense, I think it is probably reference to the Spirit. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this section? Yes, Melindy. Yes, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Um, but, th but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Yeah, here I think he's talking about these false teachers, these teachers who are opposing the teaching of the apostles um, who have been given the spirit by, by Christ in order to proclaim the truth about him and his death and resurrection. And so, yeah, I, I, I would see these as people who have certainly fallen away from the truth, but even more than that are are teaching contra to the truth or teaching against the truth. Does that make sense? Um, who, are, who are now false, falsely teaching against um, what is true. Does that make sense? Oh, sure, yeah, this has continuing relevance today. Um, obviously, there certainly there are many, many false teachers today um, who would lead people away. And that's why we, I think, need to emphasize what John emphasizes here, which is going back to the scriptures, not being carried away by strange and, you know, unusual teachings, but, but just going back to that which was from the beginning, as um, John says, which abides in you, that simple um, truth about who Jesus is and his person. Yeah. Mark? Right. Yes. Right. I think what he's warning us against is just as, as you mentioned these these false teachers or people who come to you and say, Oh, I have this secret knowledge for you. Right. You listen to me. Right. And and sadly today they have this great megaphone. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah, he's certainly not opposing. He's not saying we all sort of individually have the spirit and we, we sit in our bedrooms and eat the spirit reveals everything to us. Now, God may speak to you in your bedroom, reading the Bible by yourself. That's true. But normally, um, God reveals himself to us in community, in churches. I mean, as our Westminster Confession or Catechism states, um, um, the Spirit of God makes um, the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, um, efficacious for us, right? It's it's the the declared word um, in community um, through God's appointed representative where this, the spirit most directly speaks to us. Yeah, this, this contrast that exists now in the 20th century or 21st century, last hundred years or so, you know, that, that idea that if you want to hear the spirit speak, you need to go out somewhere, you need to go on a, you know, private retreat for four days and maybe eventually the spirit will speak to you if you get isolated enough. Um, that's not how the Bible talks about what the spirit does and where he shows up. The Spirit speaks most clearly, most plainly in the context of the faithful community. Yeah, Jeremy. Um, yeah, um, I'm like, I have a like, like, you know, people say this, but um, Chris Hopkins song talks so much about, you know, the will of God being in the following community and all of those things. I, I guess recently I had three days of like, you know, just like really needing to have your inner kind of voice of spirit. Especially as, as it goes along with as we know, because John talks a lot about this, knowing the will of God as far as his commandments. Yes. And so the idea is that if the contrast is between being teachers, being in some like you know, community island or you know, strange idea or something like that, the idea is where the Holy Spirit leads us <coughs> through these like ordinary commands of being around. Uh, it, and, and then it's like there's no greater teacher than as far as being like instructed by or being struck by this command of like how to live and like how to how to do these things. Because it really does seem like it's so much of like John is just talking about people who are just like not taking seriously the idea that they have to have this like spiritual alignment or something like that. And so and so I'm just a, a rambling kind of thing to say. But I think I Mm-hmm. Helps us to understand things deeply without being, in any certain sense, like running off into the woods on just a radical sense of theology. Right. Like that. We're so focused on like obeying the will of God, like trying to follow the commands of God, rather than trying to, I don't know, deduce some mystery that's going to get there. Yeah, and as Jesus says, the Spirit will guide you into truth. And there, I don't think he's. Uh, and he says in John 16, remember in John 14, he's referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. I think what he's saying there is not that the Spirit's going to lead you into some kind of esoteric truth that you don't understand yet, but that he is going to lead you into a fuller understanding of me, who I am. Um, and he's going to do that through the writing of the Gospels and the study of the Gospels. Um, uh, that, that sort of sustained meditation on the life of Jesus as the Spirit reveals him and the testimony of the apostles. Um, you know, the four Gospels are the most precious books on earth, um, as it's been said, um, because they reveal to us the person of Jesus. And in that, they reveal to us truth, 
um, capital T truth um, in a way that no other books do. Um, and it's, yeah, it's fascinating to think about that. Um, yeah, Kim and Tama. You mean, give me a little more. What What are you thinking about? Multiple anointings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I mean, obviously, in terms of our um, understanding theologically, um, our baptisms function in ways that are similar to Jesus in the sense that we believe that the Spirit um, is, is, fills us, the Spirit anoints us, the Spirit claims us. Um, and certainly, you know, we want to say that that, you know, the, the spirit is not bound to do that, or as our confession states, not all those who are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Um, but the confession also says that um, the, the um, how does it put it, that, that essentially what happens in baptism is not limited just to that moment. Um, and I think that can be taken in multiple ways. Um, I, I take what they mean there to say that, that the anointing that comes in baptism um, of the spirit is something that continues on. It's not just a one-time event, but it extends through our life. Um, you know, our, our, what we receive in baptism um, has continuing efficacy um, by the spirit. And, and so I would, I would think about, that's where I would talk, if, if someone wanted to think about, well, what does it look like for me to be anointed by the spirit? I would say, well, I think you, your baptism is your assurance of that, um, that as you have demonstrated fruit of repentance and faith in your life. Uh, you can be assured that the Lord um, used that moment um, of your baptism to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And he's continued, that doesn't, you know, you don't lose that. The Spirit abides with you. That's, that's how I would, I mean, certainly we grow in our um, knowledge and the Spirit leads us into deeper places. But I think for the believer, the Spirit and is anoint that anointing continues, I would say, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Do you have a thought? Uh-huh. Yeah, and I would, I would, I, I agree. It's very sad, and I would even go beyond. When comes to you and says, "Hi, I'm a prophet from God, and such and such is going to happen," um, I think you can say, "That's not how God works. Um, he has said all that He has needed to say um, that we need to know um, in the Scriptures um, by the Spirit through His true prophets, and you know, um, He doesn't He doesn't work in that way anymore. Um, so what you have is an educated guess 
you know, it, it's not, it's not a, um, or maybe not educated, I don't know. Um, People I'm concerned with are the ones listening. So. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I think that's what we need to, yeah, that, that's certainly one of the greatest dangers in the world today. Um, I mean, there are many things to be grateful for in the Pentecostal movement. I grew up Pentecostal. Um, but one of the things that is really dangerous about the Pentecostal movement is this emphasis on prophecy um, extra biblical prophecy as a as a means by which you construct your life and it's it's false teaching and it's dangerous and it's yeah it, it leads to all sorts of and yeah and and the problem and I think what we need to do is we just need to keep pushing people back to the scriptures and say no God has said everything that you need to know you don't have to look for some kind of word that's out there that's going to tell you how to live or what you should do you need to where the spirit does speak but he speaks in his word um, in his church yeah and I, I think that's how we have to respond to those things all right we're, we're at time so i'm gonna um, call an end this is great appreciate the discussion and i'm here and we can talk more if you want so let's stand and pray father in heaven we thank you for your word we thank you for your spirit we thank you for the anointing that we receive in christ and the one who anoints us the one who baptizes us with his spirit um, we ask, Father, that indeed you would help us um, to not love the world and to examine our lives um, for places um, where we do love the world um, in ways that are destructive to our souls. Help us, Father, to love not things that pass away, but things that last, um, those who are um, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to love you, Father, um, especially as you've given us your Son as we abide in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.